This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you, you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You are listening to iFanboy's Talksplode with Joe Kubert.
Hey, this is Josh Flanagan, and today we welcome a true legend, Joe Kubert, to the show. We are here to talk to Joe about the May book of the month, Dong Shuai, but also about his very long career in comic books, illustrating and writing his own stories and graphic novels, as well as starting the Kubert School to teach young cartoonists and comic book artists how to make comics. Let's not waste any more time and get right to the conversation. I am here with Joe Kubert. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you, Josh. How are you? I'm very well. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. Good, good. Um, we are here to talk about your new book, Dong Zhuai, and I believe I pronounced that right. Yes, you did. Very good. Um, why don't you uh, tell us what it's about, what the book is? Uh, the, the story essentially is uh, uh, about a, an actual event that occurred in 1965 in Vietnam. Uh, this was before the war. This was when uh, special forces guys were sent to work with the indigenous people uh, to clean up their uh, their small towns to prepare them for the war that was oncoming uh, from north from the north Vietnamese. And uh, these groups of special forces guys, twelve in a group, were sent from the United States to help the people. Uh, they were told not to fire at anybody unless they were fired at. So this was, as I said before, before the war was starting. Now, this did not, however, stop the attacks from the North Vietnamese on the South, whether the soldiers, whether the American soldiers were there or not. And as it happened, this the story that I did, which uh, is is based uh, which is based on a true story of what occurred in this small hamlet uh, near Cambodia, uh, and and how how the men uh, were put upon, the strains and vicissitudes that they had gone through. It's the story of the men uh, more than the war, I believe. Um, uh, I, I learned about these people from uh, the person who was in charge uh, of, the, of the group when they were sent there, and I got to know him and to meet him. Uh, that was that was Bill uh, Stokes, who is now a retired colonel. And uh, I always had what I thought was a personal relationship with them. Uh, I admired them, and like I said before, it's a story of people in a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, how, did, how did it come about that you did this book? Because uh, if I read it correctly, he, he contacted you to do a drawing? Yeah. What had happened was about uh, 40 years ago, I was doing a strip called uh, Tales of the Green Beret, which was written by Robin Moore, a very popular book, and the comic strip uh, uh, was a result of that. It was distributed worldwide, and as a kickoff, uh, the uh, newspaper was getting together as much promotional material as possible. One of the things that they that, that occurred was that they had invited somebody who had been in South Vietnam, a special forces guy who had won a Medal of Honor. Uh, they asked me to do a drawing of the event that had occurred that got him that medal, which I did. This was all 40 years ago. Advance forward very quickly to uh, three years ago, I get a letter from uh, uh, retired Colonel Bill Stokes, who who has been in contact with all the men that he had served with in Dong Shui, and has been like a recording secretary to not only uh, keep in touch with all the guys that were still around, I think there were two or three left 
of the 12, the initial 12 that had gone there, but to their families, their children, their grandchildren, and so on, just to let them know uh, what what they had gone through and uh, their experiences, and uh, not to forget about the kind of thing that had occurred. Uh, the men had been meeting like once or twice a year, and, and Bill was their uh, contact. He was the guy that put the stuff together. He was the one that kept them all in contact. Now, Bill was not involved in comic books. He was as far removed from comic books as you can imagine. But uh, along with the information that he had sent out to his men was a drawing, that drawing that I'd done 40 years ago. He had apparently Googled me or found out who I was. My name was on the on the drawing itself. And he had included this drawing in the material that he was sending to to the families, to the people that were around. However, the drawing that I had done 40 years ago had been in the newspapers and wasn't clear. And he asked me if I had a clear copy of that particular drawing. Now, this was 40 years ago, and... Uh, there was as much chance of me finding that particular drawing as finding uh, a diamond in my backyard. Uh, but I offered to do another drawing based on, on the one that I had done long ago, and he accepted. He said, that would be great. I did the drawing, sent it to him, and he sent back a reply, how much do I owe you, Joe? I said, <laughs> nothing. I, I'm more than happy to do that. But you can do one thing for me. I would love to have a copy of the material you're sending to the guys who are still around, which he did. Well, when I read the when I read the copy, the material, the letter that was sent around was a detailed description of what had occurred to each one of the twelve men who were involved in this battle in Dong Shui, and the description of the men not only during the battle, but before the battle, these guys had a a very, very close relationship. This this was really a band of brothers of whom there are many in the armed forces. But when I read this, when I saw the story that existed in the material that I read, I said, this is a book I've got to do. Up to this point, I had never met face-to-face with, with Bill. I gave him a call. I told him, he lived. He lives. I think he still lives uh, down in North Carolina. I told him I'm coming down. I want to talk to him. I drove down there from New Jersey. Got together with him and said, "Look, Bill, I got this material from you. I'd love. I want to do a book on this. I think that this is probably one of the most gripping stories I've read in a long time. I would love to have your help in doing this." But if if you feel for whatever reason you don't want to do it, that's fine because I'm going to do the book anyhow. He acquiesced. Not only did he say okay, but he helped me in any innumerable kinds of ways. He had hundreds of photographs that he had taken while he was stationed in in Dong Chui, and uh, told me more detailed information about the men. The only reason, eventually, that the book came out without the men's name, their actual names, and why it's entitled Based on a True Story, is because the men ob- objected to the dialogue. Now, I had no, I had no way of getting that. I mean, it wasn't taped or anything, so I had no way of determining dialogue other than what Bill Stokes had told me about these guys. 
These guys were very sensitive. They felt very strongly they were not heroes. They were not there because they were doing any special superhero stuff. They were there because they had a job to do and they did it. And the job was also, part of that job was taking care of the guy that was standing next to them. And so they felt that they didn't want to have their names used because they felt uncomfortable with the dialogue that I had written, for which I respected them, for which I felt was fine. That was why the, the names were changed, and the title is one. The title of the book is one that's based on fact, not a true, mm -hmm. based on a true story, and not a true story in fact. What is it you keep coming? Your work seems to keep coming back to stories about war and conflict and things like that. What is it about these kind of stories that you're drawn to? Oh God, I don't know. I guess that. I guess the one thing that that kind of entices me is the same is the same thing that uh, kind of induces anybody to pick up a book like that, and that is uh, the kind of pressures, the kind of uh, situation that people that men find themselves in. Uh, facing all kinds of terrible, calamitous results, looking to one another to take care of one another, to make sure that they're looking out of course for themselves and the guy who's next to them. And under under the kind of conditions where a wrong turn or, or a wrong situation is a matter of life and death, is one, I think, that is so highly charged that it makes for an interesting story. But I'm not, I mean, I've, I've, I guess I've been uh, kind of connected with a lot of the war stories because the stuff, I've, not, not because I've selected to do that mm -hmm. particularly, but I've been given those stories to do. They have been popular, and in my business, if, if you do something that seems to sell well, you've got a hell of a lot more coming, and that's, and that's the way it's worked out. So I mean that that's true that you've actually done plenty of other plenty of other kinds of comics over the years. Uh, is it is it I mean do, is there are there other kinds of uh, stories that you also like working on a lot that people? I mean I think that newer fans you know younger people who who are just coming around to work and you know discovered like facts from Sarajevo and this and you know some of the more recent mm -hmm. Sergeant Rock work think of you as doing war comics. But uh, what are some of the other kinds that you really like to do? Well, I've done superheroes, I've done Indian stories, I've done westerns, I've done mystery stories, I've, you name it, <laughs> you name it, and I've done it. And what and at this stage of the game, what I'm what I'm doing really is uh, uh, I'm I'm lucky enough to be able to select those things that I want to do, and uh, DC is going to be printing them. I'm I'm in the process now of doing a series of anthologies, six anthologies that I'm packaging. It will be entitled uh, uh, Joe Kubert Presents. The first book was is uh, is featuring a 22-page story that I've written and, and drawn. Uh, it's going to be a Hawkman story. It is a Hawkman story. Uh, so I'm just selecting the stuff that I'm, I like to do and I want to do. And this one happens to be a superhero. The next one is going to be... Um, Oh, the second of the book is going to be featuring the Redeemer, a thing that I put together about uh, 20 years ago and has never been published. And that's a creator-owned piece that's going to be uh, done, uh, uh, which is a kind of uh, science fictionish kind of story. So it depends on the on the story itself. It depends on how interesting it is that kind of spurs me to do it. Now, now, you've been in comics a long time. I'm, I'm wondering, if you've, this is probably the kind of freedom that you never had, 
at, yeah, at any point. That's true. That's uh, I mean, true. Did, you, did you ever expect to be able to just sort of be able to do anything you wanted? <laughs> I am probably one of the luckiest guys in the world. I've said it a thousand times because it's true. I am in a position now where I can be very selective with what I want to do. I have uh, uh, several projects uh, that I'm that I'm waiting to get into. Uh, I did something called Jew Gangster, a first book that is actually going to be a trilogy. The second book is already written and laid out. It's been sitting in my drawer now for about three years because I haven't been able to get back to it. Uh, about a month ago, I finished inking uh, two books, uh, working with my son, uh, Andy. And that was the greatest kick in the world. That was the greatest pleasure in the world. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I, it's a series of Batman stories that, that he has done that he penciled and I inked. And it was a great, great pleasure for me. So, I, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. Um, let me ask you real quickly about uh, the style that you used on Deng Shui. Uh, and you've used this before where it's, it's basically a pencils only. You haven't really yeah. delineated panels or anything like that. Yeah. Is there a reason that you chose to do it that way? Definitely. In this particular story, I wanted a sense of immediacy happening. I wanted to get the impression that I was a combat artist making these sketches at these events happened and communicating to the reader that, look, you're looking at stuff that I saw that I'm putting down on paper that I actually, that I actually saw happening in front of my eyes. Now they're in front of your eyes. I hope that I'm able to communicate that to the reader, that immediacy, that feeling of the events actually happening in front of them uh, that I felt. That makes sense. It, it, it feels, you know, sort of rough and loose, but, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, it's, it, it tells the story really well. It's, it's, kind of, it's very much a page-turner in that way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, you have sort of a unique position that you've, you've been in the industry a long time. You've taught a lot of people. I'm curious what sort of what sort of differences that you see in the industry today than say when you first started the the Kubert School. Uh, oh God, it's it's like another world. <laughs> uh, the business today is the product is completely and totally different. The uh, introduction of uh, computers has changed the whole world, and uh, part of that world happens to be comic books as well. Uh, nobody in my business thirty or forty years years ago ever dreamed. Uh, the kind of um, the kind of printing that would occur to see a comic book come out that's as cleanly delineated as the National Geographic never happened in this world, but boy, it did. Uh, the illustrations, the, the talented people, the artists are just terrific. The one thing I'm still a little bit disappointed in is the fact that uh, I find that the color is so overpowering and the drawings are so detailed that very often I find it difficult to find a story. And as far as I'm concerned, the cartoonist is essentially a storyteller. You can do the most beautiful drawings in the world. You can have it printed on, on gold foil, but if you can't read it, you're, uh, you're not a cartoonist and it's not a comic book. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, do you think that I'm wondering, is the bar higher for it? Is it harder to, you know, be a su successful cartoonist now than it was? Absolutely. When I started out as a kid, it was 64 pages of material printed on stuff that uh, you could have used as toilet paper. And um, it sold for 10 cents. And what the publisher was interested in 
was to get those 64 pages done and get uh, get the book out, which gave an opportunity to people like myself, who, when I was very, very young, uh, to learn on the job. So the first job that I may have sold when I was 12 or 13 years old would never, never in this world be published today. Uh, the things that I did, the I, I I was just being introduced to the kind of material that people use <clears throat> to make sure that the printing was done well. I had no idea, and very few people in my business uh, at that time or even today realize fully what happens between the time they finish the drawing on an original page and what it looks like when it comes out in print. All of these things I had to learn. There's no time no place to learn it now. The comic books now contain 22 pages of material. Every one of those pages are vital. They sell for three or four bucks a shot. So every one of those pages are extremely vital and they, and that does not give an opportunity to those like myself when I was young uh, to learn on the job. You either know it or you don't. But I got to tell you, that there is a need, there is a heavy need for people who do what I do today. <laughs> um, I'm I'm curious, you know, when you when you first started working and throughout the 50s and 60s, you know, comic books were to to a lot of people considered a throwaway item, and and they're not anymore. That's but correct. I'm wondering, you know, were were you aware of people, or did you feel like there was? I assume you felt like there was there was something more to this. There was something more valuable to comics than than oh. just. No, no, I just loved what I was doing, and I still do for that matter. I just loved to be able to do the drawing. There were a lot of guys. I mean, like I said, I was just a kid when I got into the business, but people older than myself, adults, people who had been in advertising and terrific illustrators found themselves in a situation now with, with the demise of magazines like Collier's and, uh, and uh, uh, magazines that had used illustrations no longer around. Uh, they they came into comic books and they were ashamed mm-hmm. to be described as comic book artists. This was kid stuff. This was, you know, junk reading. And uh, a lot of people, you know, if you ask them uh, the artist what they was doing, well, I'm in advertising or I'm I'm doing commercial artwork. They would never say that they were in comic books. Well, that never affected me. Never. When I was a kid, I was happy as a lot that I was able to do the work I was doing. And I've never been ashamed of the work that I've done. So it must be a really good time now when being a comic book artist is a, is a much different, it's held in much different regard. It's amazing. Yeah. It's really amazing. We've, we've taken on a, uh, a cloak of responsibility or, or, or uh, acceptability mm-hmm. that uh, I think a lot of us never dreamed of. Let me ask you something. Uh, be honest, a lot of guys your age aren't drawing anymore. They're not doing the high level you are, but you're still putting out really quality sort of high level work and <laughs> stuff you. like that how, you. you know how do you feel about that how do you how do you keep that up well i i light a candle every day and i get up in the morning and i count my blessings mm-hmm. i'm a very lucky guy <laughs> um let me see oh i i wanted to ask you about about the the school and starting the school uh, yep. you know at the time that you started the school in 1976 i there was nothing else like that was there i mean no no and as a matter of fact there are no schools like the one i have here there are no schools like this anywhere there are there are schools that have courses different courses in cartooning there are art schools that have excellent courses in cartooning but not as extensive not as focused as we have here what I suppose what what led you and your wife to to create the school and and uh, you know 
Well, I've always had I've always had Josh in the back of my head that if I could take the time, some of that time away from my own work, because I would never give up my work. If it were if it were toss up between uh, drawing and doing a school, the school would never be here. Um, I felt that if I could do both at the same time, and I could because my wife took a lot of the burden off my back, uh, she really ran the business end of what was going on here. I just kept the curriculum and taught a couple of days a week. Uh, I felt it would be a good thing where somebody uh, could acquire the necessary abilities to do this kind of work because the needs for the cartoonist who works for comic books are quite different from most of the other commercial areas of art. Quite, quite different. And the only guys you can really get the input from are the ones who are in the business. Um, those are few and far between. Not only that, but once you're in the business, uh, to be able to sacrifice that time to teach is a, is a tough thing. You will, you will find that, generally speaking, those who, <clears throat> those who are teaching uh, cartooning uh, are cutting away a lot of the time from the business itself. Um, I, I started the school because I felt that there was a need, as I said, for one place where instead of gathering information as I did from guys, and they were very kind to me, every guy I ever met in the business never, always, has always extended themselves, never hesitated to tell me what I had to do, what I had to learn, and so on and so forth. Well, that was by happenstance. Every time, you know, if I go into the city, I'd meet somebody and we'd talk and he would say, well, this is the kind of brush to use, this is the kind of ink I use, this is the kind of paper, and so on and so on and so on. This is the way you do this stuff. This is the way you tell the story. Well, I was able to garner that kind of information on a hit-and-miss basis. And I always felt that if there was a school somewhere where somebody could pick up all the stuff that took me maybe 10 or 15 years to learn, that would be a good thing. Uh, such a, a, a situation did arise. I was able to do it. My, uh, I have five kids. They were all pretty much out of the house. Uh, my wife, who is a, a college graduate with a degree in business, uh, I asked her if she was interested in, in running the business. If she had said no, the school would not be here. As happened, she said yes, and that's why the school is here. How has the sort of, uh, I guess, the curriculum or the, the sort of skills that you teach them, teach the students, changed? Uh, well, we've been, the focus, of course, has been more and more on the computer. Uh, we're teaching now coloring and drawing and all those other things that many, many artists in the business are using. There's no substitute for the, uh, for the hand that pushes the stylus or that pushes the pencil. There are no substitutes for that. Uh, the... Um, the uh, computer is a wonderful machine, but that's what it is. It's a machine. It's like a, it's no different than another brush or another pencil. Uh, it's the guy that uh, that works it that really makes it go. And uh, so the curriculum has changed to focus in on these tools, but nevertheless, the basics have haven't changed at all. I have a an advisory board here at the school made up of. Uh, representatives from all the big companies uh, around, from D.C., from Marvel, and so on. Joe Quesada, uh, 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 Paul Levitz was here and is, and still comes in, and uh, uh, several other, other places, Archie, and so on. And they tell me what the needs are in the business today. And we incorporate those things. We meet uh, twice a year. 
they, we, we have these wonderful meetings where we discuss and talk about changes that have occurred, application of things that are happening, and so on and so forth. And we put that, we include that, and extend that into the, into the uh, ongoing studies that go on here at the school. Now, as a person who's who is also still just working in the comic book industry as a writer and as an artist, I'm I'm curious what if you picked up and you know is your style evolving and changing? Have you learned new things all along the way? Geez, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, I think that an artist. I, well, let me let me be more personal. I feel that every job I've done, every piece of work I've done, the one that's on the table is my favorite. One, because I'm focusing all my attention and all my efforts in that particular job, regardless of what the the uh, subject matter is or anything else. That's that's the piece I'm I'm on to, and uh, I'm hoping when I finish it looks pretty good. But once I'm finished, I start going over all the stuff, seeing perhaps all the places that I could have made it just a little bit better. And that's why I'm always looking to the next job I'm going to be doing, because hopefully that next job will be better. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. And, George, uh, thank you. And uh, look for Dong Zhuai out it's act, uh, this week, I think. That's correct. That's great. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you very much, Josh. Don't let the darkness hit you. I want to thank Joe for spending some time talking to me. It was a real honor. Make sure to check out Dong Zhuai. It's in stores this week. Beautiful hardcover from DC Comics. You can also check out Joe's past work, including the award-winning facts from Sarajevo or any of his work on Sergeant Rock. For more information on the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art, go to www.kubertsworld.com. Also get to ifanboy.com to comment on this podcast and all the other great stuff that we have there. Thanks, and we'll talk to you later.